It's good to be with you guys this morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 17 through 22. Uh, And I want to, before I read the passage, I want to just kind of make sure that we're all on the same page here in terms of where this series is going and really what the whole letter of Ephesians is about. You guys know, because your pastor does a great job of setting you up for a series, that the two themes that are woven throughout the, the letter of Paul the Apostle to uh, the Ephesian Christians are the themes of grace and peace. It starts out with that, right? He greets the saints in Ephesus in the grace and peace of the Lord. But this isn't just a grace and peace to give us warm fuzzies and make us feel good about ourselves. This is to root us in Christ Jesus so that we can be a people who live for him and in him and in communion with the triune God in the midst of a broken and lost world, right? That's what we're being called to, is to live in Christ, in the world, and I would suggest even for the world itself. But we can't do that if we haven't first received the grace of God, grace that leads to peace, peace with God and peace with one another. That's what you guys looked at last week, first, or the middle section of chapter two. You know, the grace of God is, is displayed in the love of God, in the person of Jesus who transforms us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he tears down the walls of hostility. He overdoes the alienation, right? The estrangement from God and his people that in Christ Jesus, we might be a new people. And in this passage this morning, we begin to see what that new people looks like. So let's do this. Let's read from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. You can follow along with me on your phones and your Bibles, however you want. Just follow along. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access into one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are in your presence because we are the people that you have chosen to be present with. And we are grateful for that. We are thankful for that. We are thankful for the word that you have given to make yourself known to us in the person of your son through the supernatural exercise of your spirit, giving us access to you not only in prayer, but through your word. And so we ask, Lord, that you would write your word on our hearts, that you would transform us by it, that you would challenge us and encourage us, that we might be a people who together live out our communion and fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off this morning by asking you guys, to use your imaginations. 
and really, in some respects, to critique your own imaginations. I'll do that by asking you this question. Whether you're a Christian here this morning or you're not a Christian, when you think of the church, what do you imagine? What do you picture in your mind's eye when someone talks about the church? Or better yet, if you're a Christian here this morning, using the eyes of your heart, as Paul talks about, are Christian uh, imagination united in Christ, how do you see the church? What's going on this morning here and elsewhere throughout the city of Atlanta, throughout our country, throughout the world, when Christians gather together in a local space to worship? What do you imagine that is? What is, what is the picture in your mind? What story informs that imagination? Let me ask you this as a follow-up question to that, maybe to help that question make more practical sense. There are a lot of narratives, stories that we believe that tell us who we are and who we are in community with other people. And there are stories other than the one true story revealed in the Bible that inform our imaginations. So perhaps you come to church on a Sunday morning and there's a narrative of wellness that shapes and forms the way you think about the world, the way you think about yourself in the world, and maybe even the way you think about the church. Maybe the church is just a place where you gather with other people that you look to to affirm who you are, to make you feel better about yourself, to make you feel healthier because you're in community with other people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I would suggest to you that's not ultimately what the church is about. Maybe you see the church as a gathering of like-minded individuals, and you're coming because you want to be reestablished and reaffirmed in your fill-in-the-blank, your understanding of the world out there, your understanding of what makes somebody a good person. Maybe you hope that you're going to find other like-minded individuals that feed your assumptions that the world ought to be looked at and leaned into from a conservative or a progressive worldview, whatever it is, maybe you think the church is just a, a group of, uh, of individuals that come together to form a social club that make you feel more affirmed in who you are, okay? That's a, that's a narrative out there that tells us how to view the church, but how does the scripture expect us to view the church, to imagine who we are and why we gather together? More specifically, how does Paul expect us to do that? in this passage. Well, I would suggest to you as I summarize the sermon for you right now that what Paul expects and what the scriptures expect is that we would have an imagination that recognizes that in Christ, in our union with him, the church is the visible expression of God's kingdom. It's the gathering of God's family and ultimately it's the place of his holy dwelling. That's a lot to digest, but fortunately, Paul unpacks all of those things through metaphors, through mental images that he creates for us so that we can better understand who we are as the people of God. And so let's unpack those three metaphors that get at that summary. Let's look at the metaphor of citizenship, the metaphor of household, and then the metaphor of temple that Paul uses in this passage. First, you'll notice in verse 19 that Paul uses the imagery or the metaphor of citizenship. Saw that? He says, so then you, 
When he speaks to you there specifically, he's referring to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus that are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember, he dealt with that earlier on in, in, this, in this chapter. But your fellow citizens with the saints. What's Paul getting at there? What's this metaphor supposed to uh, cultivate in our imaginations? It's a picture of God's holy transnational kingdom. What the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 called the, the, uh, the holy priesthood, uh, the, or this kingdom of priests and this holy nation, okay? Uh, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, you see what Paul is doing here specifically as he builds on this metaphor of, of, of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Remember he said in verse 12, remember that you were at that time back when we were still the uncircumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants of promise that were given to the people of God. But that word, commonwealth, that we were cut off from, alienated from, that's the same Greek word or Greek root that he uses here when he talks about being fellow citizens. What Paul is saying is that where we were once cut off and alienated and strangers to God's people, his kingdom and the promises that he gives to his people, we are now fellow citizens in. We are now rightful, full, legal citizens in the kingdom of God. In other words, at one point, Paul is saying we were outside of the borders of where God's rule and reign is expressed. And some of us had a sense that maybe on the other side of that barrier, there was something that we desperately wanted and desperately needed. And for others of us, we had no idea what we were missing. And what Paul is saying here is that when the gospel came to us, when we by faith put our hope in Jesus... That wall of hostility, that dividing wall between God and us and between us and God's people was torn down. We were welcomed into this kingdom and given full citizenship. And notice that Paul is talking both to Jews and Gentiles right here. And he's saying together now you have this full membership and citizenship in the kingdom of God because the gospel has reversed the divisions of old and the hostility of old. And now we have equality with each other as full citizens in the kingdom of God. And that is why Peter can say that we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation together. Because as the saints, as the holy ones, we now share full membership, full citizenship in the kingdom of God. The question that we have to ask ourselves when we think about that is, one, do we see ourselves that way? Do we see ourselves as this holy nation, united together, not just in this room, but with other Christians throughout the city, throughout the country, and throughout the world? And it's a beautiful thing that y'all pray, and I gotta stop saying y'all when I move up north, but I'll break myself of that habit, don't worry. It's beautiful that you guys pray for other churches in your presbytery that you're engaged in the work of, of churches 
throughout the city and throughout the country and, and around the world because that is an expression of that dual citizenship that we all have or that mutual citizenship that we all have in the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, we all still build walls, right? We can kind of cognitively recognize that the walls of hostility have been torn down and yet there are ways in which we still build walls. In our sin, we still struggle with this peace and this unity that we have with each other. So I just want you to use your imaginations and think about the ways you do that. How do you build walls? Or, to put it another way, how do you impose partial citizenship on others or on yourself? You know, what are the ways in which you maybe don't welcome others because they don't make you comfortable They challenge your sense of what unity should look like and what the church should look like and what purity should look like. Maybe you yourself build those walls or you create a sense of partial citizenship for yourself because you're embarrassed about where you are economically, educationally, or maybe you're embarrassed about your marital status. It's it's not the marriage that you expected it to be. It's, It's hard. It's difficult. There are a lot of dark things that need to be wrestled with. Maybe parenting is difficult and you're not excited about how your kids have turned out and you're embarrassed about that so you, you don't want to fully engage with this people lest they know the difficulties that you have. Maybe you're single or unmarried and you're just not sure how you fit into the local church or maybe you're married with kids and you don't mean to but you treat the unmarried folks as if they're just partial citizens How are the ways in which we do that? What are the things that we're comfortable with, people struggling with? It's okay for them to come and be in our midst if they struggle with that, but as soon as they open up about this struggle, we're going to keep you at at an arm's length, and we're going to communicate that really you're not welcome here. What Paul is saying is that if we have put our faith in Jesus, we have full and equal citizenship with each other in the kingdom of God, and we ought to embrace that with and for each other. And we ought to long to see others come and participate in that. And we ought ourselves to participate in that, no matter how difficult and challenging the vulnerability that is required might be. But notice Paul doesn't just leave us with that citizenship, that, that, uh, that political national imagery He actually demonstrates the fact that what we share together is even more intimate and more beautiful than just simply being citizens in the kingdom of God, but we are also members of the household of God. You see that in the rest of verse 19. Not only are we fellow citizens with the saints, but we are members of the household of God. He's building on what he's already alluded to in verse 18 when he said that we all together have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay? that we all get to celebrate and enjoy not just fellowship with, but access to the Father, God the Father, that we get to come into his presence and not just come into his presence as those who are kind of welcomed from time to time and have this stiff and formal audience with the king, but instead, like Mephibosheth of old, We're welcomed into the family of the king, into the family of God, that we have the mutual benefits of family membership. We have, as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it, we have all of the rights and privileges 
of sonship. That we, with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, get to enjoy an inheritance of God's kingdom. Notice how the two metaphors of citizenship and household kind of come together as we recognize that as those that are adopted as the sons of God, we get to share in Jesus' inheritance and glory as the king of the kingdom of God. That should floor us. That should overwhelm us with joy. You know, th- when we gather together as a people of God to worship, we ought to come with reverence and awe, but we ought to come with joy. Glad at the fact that together we get to enter into, and as we'll see, be the very presence of God. That we are the ones that he calls his beloved sons. And notice, I'm not, I'm not trying to leave the lady folk out of this. Actually, what's going on here is that Paul, in a very countercultural way, is saying that men and women both together get to enjoy the rights and privileges of sonship. Notice, or remember that in that culture, women were not allowed to inherit their father's estate and wealth. Only the male children could do that. And what the Bible, what the biblical writers were doing was saying, in God's kingdom, things are completely different. We all get the rights and privileges of the sons. We all get full access to the Father, and we all have a place at the table. We all have a place at the king's banquet, and we all get to inherit the kingdom together. And that's a beautiful thing. We all have, through our adoption, full citizenship and full membership in the household of God as we get to participate in this royal family. Is that a beautiful thing? Well, notice how Paul talks about or brings those two uh, metaphors together of citizenship and household. In verse 20, he, he basically says that this, this idea of being fellow citizens and members of the household of God comes together when we recognize that both, or all those two metaphors together, are, 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 are strengthened in the fact, or come together in the fact that together we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In other words, what Paul is saying is we're not just citizens of the kingdom. We're not just the family, the royal family of God for no purpose, but it's in order that we might be built together in Christ on the foundation of the gospel so that we would become a temple. So before we get to the imagery of temple, I want us to think about this for a second, that what Paul is saying here is that the foundation of the king, or the foundation of the temple that expresses itself in in citizenship in the kingdom of God and membership in the family is the very gospel declaration of salvation and wholeness, not just for us individually, but for us corporately and for the very universe in Christ Jesus. You see, the apostles and the prophets represent the revelation of God in Christ Jesus as it's come to us through, first, the apostolic ministry in the first century, but then as it comes to us and is, is, uh, is codified for us in the scriptures, 
Yes, of the Old Testament, but specifically of the New Testament, in which the mysteries of God are revealed that declare that now Jew and Gentile alike are united to Christ and have fellowship with God and are one people. Paul's going to go on to talk about that in the coming chapter. But what Paul is saying here is that as we are built on the scriptures, built on the apostolic uh, revelation of God in Christ Jesus, it all culminates in that cornerstone, right? The cornerstone is Christ Jesus. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, Jesus is the gospel. He is the substance of what the scriptures reveal and the truth that sets us free, and the imagery here is kind of cool if you think about the cornerstone being the, in the corner, surprisingly, or not surprisingly. The cornerstone's in the corner. It's the thing that actually brings the two walls together. Notice what Paul's doing here. Walls have been torn down. The wall of hostility and division has been torn down, and a new structure is being built up. And the two walls of the Jews and the Gentiles come together at the cornerstone, in Christ Jesus, so that together they might now be built up into this temple, but the temple finds its shape and its form in Christ Jesus. He's the one that we're being built up into in order that we might be this temple of the living God. And so Paul, having gone from that metaphor of citizenship, the metaphor of household now, laying the groundwork of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in Christ Jesus now says that we're being built up into this holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What he's saying here is that this royal household, this kingdom of priests and this holy nation culminate and serve the purpose of this temple being built that God might dwell among us as God's people so that the church then universally, okay, but also in its local expressions becomes the location of God's presence in all of his glory, in all of his holiness and righteousness, in all of his grace, mercy, and love. This is the place where heaven meets earth. And I want us to think about that for a second. This is the place where heaven meets earth. Not in full, not in total, but as a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no temple. For God's dwelling place will be with man. God himself will be the temple, right? But where is God going to dwell but in the new Jerusalem, the city of God, which is the people of God? He's going to dwell in our midst, but before then, his dwelling place is among us now. By his spirit, when we gather together in the name of Jesus to worship the triune God, he not only welcomes us into his presence, but he makes us his very presence, as his people. This is the place where the roots of heaven, if you will, are sinking into the earth that will one day become the restored earth, the new creation, and the very presence of God. And we get to participate in that. We get to be that now as we're sent out on mission 
to be the people who gather other living stones, if you will, to use, again, Peter's imagery. As we gather other living stones that are built on top of us, and as they gather others that will be built on top of them, and as we become more and more the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, as we anticipate and long for the new heavens and the new earth. Every time the gospel is read, every time the gospel is preached, every time we hear of God's work in each other's lives and as we share each other's burdens, as we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, every time we grow both personally and as a church in imaging Jesus, what God is doing is building his temple, making us more and more an expression of that future reality, making us more and more and better and better witnesses to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to participate in that. The question that we have to ask ourselves, though, is how does that challenge us? How does that challenge the way we think about the church? I don't know how all of you struggle with viewing the church correctly. We all struggle with it. We all want the church to be the perfect answer to this question or that question, to meet this need or that need. But do we have an, under, do we have an understanding and a picture of the church as God sees it, as the visible expression of his kingdom? Do we see it as his royal family? Remember, Jesus said the way that we love each other as a family is the way that the world is going to know that God actually sent his son. And that he actually is doing what he promised to do to make all things new. But do we see ourselves that way? Because if we don't see ourselves that way, we're not going to live it out. Right? We're going to come with all of our, our misconceptions of what the church is going to be. And we're almost always going to be disappointed because it's not going to meet those needs that we think it should need, meet. But if we see it rightly, and if we see each other rightly, then we begin to understand how God is and will be working not only in us, but through us to accomplish his purposes, that his grace may go out, that others may experience the peace of God that surpasses understanding, that others would be united to Christ and united to us as his people in order that we might live faithfully and fittingly in the world and for the world. In other words, if we're understanding the church rightly, it's going to change us. We're not going to be thinking about the church in terms of what can I get out of it, but how can I engage and participate in it faithfully for the sake of those that sit next to me and in front of me and behind me, for the sake of those who lead me in worship and care for my soul and preach the gospel to me week in and week out from the pulpit and in the living room and at the coffee shop. How can I participates in what God by his spirit is doing in and amongst these people. It's going to change us, but it's also going to encourage us. Because when we see the church as God sees it, when we see the church as God intends us to be, we begin to recognize that this is the very existence of humanity and community that we all long for. A place 
where we hear that we are far more broken and far worse off than we could ever imagine, and yet we're far more loved than we could ever hope. And we find out that there are other people walking the journey of life who are just as broken and just as desperate for that same awe-inspiring and life-transforming affection that is offered to us by God in the person of Jesus. It transforms us and changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see each other, and the way we see what God is doing in our midst for the life of the world. And what that's going to do then is change the way we think about our families. How do we father our children? How do we love our wives or our husbands? How do we love our parents in the midst of all of their brokenness? Right? How does the family fit into the church? Okay? Not how does the church fit into my family and my family schedule and my family ideals, but how does my family fit into the life of the church? How do we begin to see our family as first and foremost the people of God that our family gets to participate in together? That the seeds of heaven might not only be planted in this place, but in our homes and in our neighborhoods. How does it change the way in which we see our work? So when we have this, when our imaginations are captivated by the story of the gospel, and when they're captivated by the picture of who the church is, we no longer have to stress out about whether or not our job is making us enough money, whether it's giving us enough satisfaction and fulfillment. We no longer have to obsess with whether or not we're gaining enough status and prestige and possessions We're free to do our work in a way that recognizes that our primary identity is found in Christ and in the midst of his people. Transforms the way we think about our witness. Are we living out our faith in a way that is actually beautiful and compelling to our friends and neighbors that don't believe? Are we actually living in such a way that says, If you were to taste the good news of the gospel and the fellowship that the people of God have with the triune God, you would know that your thirst has been satisfied in a way that no other narrative, no other sense of belonging and purpose could ever satisfy. And are we letting others know that? Are we living our lives in discipleship and following Jesus in a way that actually demonstrates the beauty of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, to be priests and princes in his kingdom, to have a table in his household, at his royal table, at his royal banquet. Is the church really a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Is this a place where God's holiness is experienced, where his love is felt, and where there is joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, we think in terms of coming to church and being serious and having our intellect engaged. We don't think about silly faces and the joy that we can express together because we have experienced the lavish love of the Father in Christ Jesus. And he's given us full inheritance in his kingdom. He's given us a place in his family
and he is making us into his very dwelling place. I would suggest to you that if the gospel isn't true, if none of that's true, then what we're doing doesn't matter. We might as well be watching baseball games, drinking beer, and doing the, having our best life now because none of this matters. But if it does, then there is nothing more important for us than when we gather in worship, when we gather in prayer, when we gather as God's people. There is nothing more important than the ministry of the local church, gathering with other saints around the world to start new churches, to invest in missions work. If this is the truest story that's ever been told, which it is, then that transforms and changes the way we see ourselves and what we're doing and what God calls us to do for our good, for his glory, and for the life of the world. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would write this word on our hearts that you would enliven and awaken the eyes of our hearts that we might see you for who you are, the king of glory, and that we might see ourselves as who we are, the visible expression of your kingdom, the people gathered into your royal household, built on the apostles' prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in order that we might become and faithfully be the place of your dwelling, the place in which your holiness resides on earth until all things are made new. Would you captivate us with that story? Transform us, change us, encourage us, and scatter us that we might gather others to come and taste of your goodness, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.